name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. A senior saint called me, I don't know, maybe several weeks ago, and, uh, and she was crying. And she was crying over all the deaths in New York City because she'd been watching the news like all those old people do. And she'd been watching the news and all it's about from beginning to end is about all the people that have been dying of COVID. And she was crying and she was saying, Jimmy, all those people who are dying in New York City. So, uh, so this has really taken a toll on us. It's uh, put a lot of fear in a lot of people. And, uh, and maybe even some of you here this morning, you're fearful, uh, you're very fearful, but you've come anyway. So, so I, I totally, totally get that. And um, well, we come back here together and we've missed this time together. At least I've missed it. Have you missed it? <laughs> you know, I've missed it. And can I just make a statement? I don't mean any judgment by this. Yeah, I do. Uh, but if, you, if you've not missed this, if you've not missed gathering with other believers, then there's something askew and you're following Jesus. Okay, I'm going to say that in a different way. It's in our DNA as followers of Jesus to be together. And if you haven't missed this, something's wrong somewhere. Mark Dever, uh, or Mark Dever, uh, if you see, saw with this, this post I put on uh, social media, Mark Dever says, many in the media and government seem to think Christians want to be in churches. They've misunderstood what a church is. It's not a sacred, listen to this, it's not a sacred place we long to be in. It's a people we long to be with. We want to be together, assembled, a church, wherever it is that we meet. And I think, I think he is so right. It's not about this building. It's not about this place. It's about us being, it's about us being together. And embedded in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 10, there's a paragraph that I think touches on this, touches on the whole issue of us gathering together. And, and so I want us to talk about that this morning. I think it addresses one of the reasons why, anyway, that we've missed being together. So as I read the text in just a moment, you're going to notice that there are three commands from the author of Hebrews. And each one of them begins with a, a let us. Let us do this and let us do that. So we're going to look at those three sets of instructions in just a moment, but let me lay the context for those let us as commands or instructions. At the end of chapter 8 in the book of Hebrews, we have the author telling us that the first covenant has become obsolete. That is the Mosaic covenant has become obsolete and it is passing away. It's not going to be anymore. It's being replaced with the new covenant that God has made with us through the Lord Jesus. In chapter 9, he reminds us that in the old covenant, in the old first Mosaic covenant, the blood of bulls and goats that were sacrificed and sheep that were sacrificed on the altar at the temple, those sacrifices could never remove the stain of sin leading to death. All men die. So those sacrifices were sort of, and I said this this morning in my practice, were sort of like a stopgap measure, I guess, for God. Or they were a picture, I think, of what God was going to do. But, but one of the things that God said, and one of the things that the author of Hebrews says in chapter 9, is that those sacrifices could never take away the debt of sin. And the debt of sin is that we die. But Jesus made a new sacrifice for us, and by that, he offered us a new covenant. And in this covenant, he not only 
cleanses us or covers our sin, but he removes our sin altogether. By his blood, by his death, by his sacrifice, he takes it away. And so the author of Hebrews says in chapter 9, verse 28, that Jesus will come a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. So at his return, he's coming to raise us from the dead and save us from death. The high priest of old in chapter 10, at the beginning of the chapter, the high priest of the old covenant or the first covenant, he would daily and then yearly go into this place and he would offer this blood of a lamb and, and it would sprinkle the altar of God. And again, it was a covering for sin. It was a temporarily removing of sin. But in chapter 10, verse 15, it says, but Jesus offered, offered himself, one offering has perfected for all times those who are made holy. Chapter 10, verse 15. And then in verse 19, he kind of rounds all this together and he says, therefore, why, why, does, why does the Bible say therefore? Answer me. Okay, because that's right. Because he's going to draw an application, right, from what he said. In other words, because of everything I just told you context-wise, therefore, this is true. Therefore, why, whenever you see therefore, like I don't know if you could hear Sue, she said, whenever you see therefore, ask yourself, why is that therefore, therefore, right? It's there to tell us the outcome of what he's just said. And so then he says, therefore, because all this is true, that Jesus has died for us, removed the curse of death by, uh, by his resurrection and given us eternal life, therefore, and then we get to our text, which is verse 22. So look at verse 22 with me. Therefore, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So let's look at the three uh, let, us, let us things here, let us instructions. Okay, the first one is right there at the beginning of verse 22. Let us draw near. Now, the question that we ought to ask ourselves is, draw near to what? Let us draw near to what? The answer is, let us draw near to God. So here, here's the first therefore. Because Christ has died for us, therefore, let us draw near to God. You say, well, Jimmy, how do you know it's draw near to God? Because back earlier in this same book, in chapter 4, verse 16, the author said, therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace and help and, and uh, grace to help in time of need. So we should draw near to God in times of need. We should draw near to God when we need help. And, and boy, don't we need help in these days, right, from the Lord. So how do we draw near to God? He actually tells us in the text. Look at it. He says, first of all, two things. He says, draw near with a sincere heart. Draw near with a sincere heart. Now, sincere heart there simply means without hypocrisy, without... Uh, without being fake, being, being genuine, being real. We all know this, right? I can fool you. You can fool me. We all fool each other, don't we, so often. But you can never fool God. And so God is saying, when you draw near, draw near to me from your heart and, and, and let it be a sincere heart. Draw, draw near to me from your heart for real, not, not in some sort of pretense. Draw near from, to me with, with, with your heart being genuine. So Jesus told the Pharisees, you remember this? He says, you justify yourselves before men, 
But, but, uh, but God knows your heart. So here's the deal. I can, I can make myself something in front of you, but I can never make myself something in front of God. And so the author of Hebrews says, hey, guys, draw near to God. And draw near from your heart, from your inner man, from your inner woman, from your inner person, right? Let it be for real from your heart. And then he says this, and draw near to God by faith. In the very next chapter, he's going to define that for us. It's actually just a few verses. And he'll say, faith is this. It's this full assurance, this absolute conviction that what we believe is true, even though we cannot see it. Even though I can't see it with my eyes, I can't necessarily touch it with my hands, he says we have this absolute conviction, this absolute assurance that what we hold to and what we believe is, uh, is true. And so he says, here's how you draw near to God. You draw near to God from your heart, and you draw near to God filled with faith, filled with conviction. And then he, then he tells us what faith really is, I think, in just a couple more verses. He says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And I think here comes the definition, because this is what faith is. Because we must believe that God exists and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. And it's two things. Listen, you have to believe that God exists. Faith, faith believes that there is a God, and God has revealed that to us where? Where has God revealed to us that there's a God? In creation and where else? And in our heart, right? He's, he's revealed it in both places that he exists. But then it doesn't just say that I have to believe in God. In fact, I think it's James that says, you believe in God, you do well. Even the demons do that, right? So the second part of faith there is that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So here's what faith is, everyone. Faith is believing that God exists and then seeking him. I mean, if you're not seeking him, you don't have faith. If you're not seeking after God, seeking to know God, then, then you're fake. You're, you're not sincere. You're not for real. So, so here's how we draw near to God. We draw near to God with a sincere heart, but we draw near to God also uh, filled with faith, believing that he exists and seeking after him. The author tells us that we can confidently do this with assurance, draw near to God, call him Father, trust in his love because Jesus died for us and, and rose again. And then he uses an a, a old covenant picture with new covenant meaning, okay? So here's the old covenant picture. In the Old Testament, so the, the priests and all, when they went into worship, they had to do these ceremonial clean cleansings. They had to wash their hands ceremonially to represent their queen, Right? And, uh, and they washed themselves. The author of Hebrews says, we have been made not ceremonially clean, we have been made truly clean, having been sprinkled by Jesus. And that's an allusion to the high priest going in and sprinkling the, the blood of the sacrifice on the, on, the, uh, on the altar once a year. Jesus took his blood, and, and it's metaphorical, guys. He doesn't sprinkle his blood literally on us. But it's a picture of the Old Testament. What Jesus does in the New Covenant is he sprinkles us with his blood and he cleanses our conscience. He makes us clean. And then not only does he, not only does he, say, does he say that, he says, but then he washes us, right? He washes us pure. Probably, probably, you know, the author's alluding to baptism, but I don't think he means literally when we get baptized in the pool back there, we're, we're washing dirt off of our skin. I, I think he's saying baptism is symbolic of the fact that Jesus is cleansing us. And because of that, I can be confident and I can come before God filled with confidence that he, he's there to help me in time of need. We can draw near to God in faith because Jesus has cleansed us. Now, you notice the author doesn't tell us how to do that. Everybody see that? It, does, it says draw near to God. I mean, it tells us how in the sense of, um, 
you know, from a sincere heart and in, with, um, what was the other, in faith, right? But it doesn't give us a legit, how do, I, how do I draw near specifically to God, right? It doesn't answer that question, but I'd like to offer a suggestion to you. Here, here's how you draw near to God specifically. You draw near to God by communing with him, by taking the time to be quiet and talk with him and get alone with him and let him talk with you. You meditate on his word. You meditate on him. You, you let his thoughts fill your heart. If you don't know what I'm talking about, I don't, I don't really know how to explain it. And it's, what, it's why that book that Marshall alluded to this morning has impacted me so because I realized my life is so busy and so filled with so much stuff that there's no time to get quiet with God. And one of the things that, that I think, this is how we draw near to God, you, you have to kind of pull away from everything and just you and God and you're meditating on him and you're reading his, his book and you're, and you're just listening to him as his spirit talks to you. That's what we've got to do. Because Jesus died for us, let's draw near to God. Here's the second thing. Let us hold fast, he says. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. What is the confession of our hope? Here it is. I mean, this is Jimmy's, this is Jimmy's words, but this is what I believe is the confession of our hope. It is that Jesus Christ is Lord, and he is risen from the dead. And by that I mean God. He is Lord, he is God, and he's risen from the dead. And that when he returns, he will raise us from the dead to be a part of his kingdom forever where he is king. I think that's our hope. I think that's the confession of our hope. And the author says, hold fast to that. Don't let go of it. Don't waver. Don't lose heart. Now let's face it. Many who begin in faith don't finish in faith. Would you be willing to agree with me that many, and I know, no, you, maybe you won't be willing to agree with me because you'll say, nope, they never had faith to start with. So let me rephrase my statement. Would you agree with me that many who appear to have faith, who look the part, that you would never know they're not a part, that you call them brother, you call them sister, you commune with them as if they are a brother, they do not all make it to the end. They fall away and they no longer follow Jesus anymore. And so the admonition here is don't lose your faith. Don't let up on your faith. Hold on to your faith to the very end. And, and this is not a singular exhortation, everyone. We find this throughout the whole New Testament. Hang on. Don't, don't waver in your faith. Make it to the end. Paul speaks of Hymenaeus and Alexander who abandoned the faith. John said that many left who were not of the faith. James said that if anyone wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, they have saved that person's soul from death, implying that not everybody gets saved back. Jesus said that if you don't abide in him, the vine, we are cut off and then burned up. Of course, that's a, that's a metaphor. I've said this all along, and as long as I can remember, I've said this. And for some of you that are a part of our family, you've heard this a lot. But this intramural discussion among Christians of whether we uh, are saved irrevocably and never able to lose our salvation or we can be saved and then lose it. You know what I mean by intramural debate? Okay, intramural debate is when like a college is they're having sports and they're all competing within the same college. They're not pe competing against another college, right? This is an intramural debate for us as believers. We don't all agree on this. 
Some people say, hey, you can be saved and you can lose your salvation. You can renounce it. You can give it up. You can lose it. Some people say, no, once you're saved, God has you and you're never going to lose your salvation. Okay, so that's the debate. Now, I've said this all along. Some of you may not agree with me, and that's okay. But I I tell you, I think it's an inconsequential argument. I mean, we can discuss it all we want, but the reality is people that we all believe are saved, they fall away. Now, were they lost? I mean, were they saved and then lost? Were they never saved to start with? I don't know. I don't think it matters. The admonition to us throughout the Word of God is, hold on to your faith, and you have it here. You have it here. Hold fast to your confession. Don't let go. Don't let up. So, hey, I tell you what, I, I know people. Don't you know people? Hey, Joshua Harris, in the last couple of years, right? Joshua Harris, pastor, author, evangelical leader. I mean, he's renounced his faith now. He no longer claims to believe. I have a really dear friend who today says, he, he says, I, man, I used to put my faith in Jesus, but I don't anymore. And I said, are you an atheist? He said, no, I'm not an atheist. I'm an agnostic. I don't know whether there's a God or not. However, when it comes to Jesus, I no longer believe in Jesus. So let me ask you, was he saved and then lost? Or was he never saved to start with? I mean, you can argue that all you want. All I know is that he looked like a Christian, act like a Christian, said he believed like a Christian, and today he's renounced his faith. And so the author of Hebrews says, cling to your faith. Let us hold fast to our confession. Cling to it, everyone, because just because you believe today, I don't think necessarily means you'll believe tomorrow unless you cling to the Lord. Now, you know, here's, you say, well, Jimmy, how do I do that? Well, I've got one strategy to offer you, and here it is. Draw near. How do, you, how do you hold fast to your confession? Draw near to God. You know, don't let him get far from you by, you're, you're choked up by the, like Marshall was saying, choked up by the busyness of this world or enticed by the riches of this world or the suffering becomes too great in following Jesus. Everybody with me? I mean, not, you have to agree with me. Everybody understand what I'm trying to say? I'm trying to say, hey, it's great for us to sit around and argue about whether people were saved or not saved to start with. The reality is people begin and don't finish. And so therefore, we should, we should hold fast to our confession. Now here's to the last one. It says, let us encourage one another. This third exhortation, uh, it's, uh, it's about encouragement, I think. We draw near to God and we hold fast to our hope. And then we, then we encourage each other. Verse 24, let me read it again. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So let me break that down. First, what I'd like you to notice is what we're encouraging each other to do. Do you see it? says we are, we are to stimulate one another, we're to encourage one another, we're to motivate one another. And what is it that I'm supposed to be doing? I'm supposed to be encouraging you to love and to do good things. You see that? There it is in the text, to love and good deeds. So he doesn't, he doesn't qualify love who. So I would say that he would have in mind, let us stimulate one another to love God with all of our hearts, all of our minds, all of our strength. Listen, let's stimulate, encourage, motivate each other to love God with all of our being. But let's, let's stimulate one another to love other people too. 
Let's challenge each other to prefer others as more important than ourselves. Let's challenge each other and stimulate and encourage and motivate us to love people because our default is selfishness. The reason that we're supposed to shine and be different is because Jesus has killed our selfishness and replaced it with his love for others. And and so let's encourage one another, stimulate one another to do just that. To, to, to love people. And that love, I think, itself shows itself in caring for the poor, the vulnerable, the needy, the sick. And it shows itself in us caring for each other, too, for caring for each other's needs and, and for preferring others as more important than ourselves, to quote Paul. So we get together to encourage each other to be faithful in following and performing these great deeds of love that God desires. Now, the second thing I want you to notice is where do we do that? And he says, uh, let's not forsake our, our gathering together. No, excuse me, I got ahead of myself. He says, let us, uh, let us, in- let me go back and read the text. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, which seems to imply that at least in part, where we do that is when we assemble together. So the reason why we're assembling together is that we're, we're wanting to encourage people uh, to do that. So, so here's two thoughts on that. Number one, I've actually already stated this, but number one, the, the, one of the major reasons why we come together in each other's presence is to help us do that. To, I, I come together with you because my desire is to help encourage you to love people and love God with all your heart. But that should be your reason for being here too, for being together with other believers, is so that you might encourage. If we could just grab this, if we could ever just get this, then we'd understand how important the assembly of believers is. I mean, this is not about you sitting and soaking or me sitting and soaking. It's really not. It's about us coming together and doing. Doing what? Encouraging, motivating, challenging, helping us want to love God and love people more. So it's a major reason why we get together is to encourage one another. So there's there's something implied in that that, um, that... that by being together, we do that. We, we help do that. Now, notice a couple of things about this, this gathering thing. It's a major reason for us to get together, but there's no time stamp on it. Did you notice that? It doesn't say get together once a week. It doesn't say to get together three times a week, once a month, once a year. There's no time stamp on it. So we kind of have to figure out, well, how often do we get together? Now, here's what I'd suggest. Let's go back to the New Testament in the early days when the guys who had just walked with Jesus, let's see what they did and what did they do. I mean, they met various times during the week. They, uh, they met in a big meeting at the temple, and then they met from house to house during the week. And again, no time stamp on it, but I would suggest, hey, let's use their model. And notice this, there's no number of people required for gathering. Did you see that? It doesn't say, hey, if you don't have three people, you're not a gathering. So although the Bible does say where two or three are gathered, Jesus is in our midst, right? So I guess maybe a gathering is just more than one if we're seeking to encourage one another to love and good deeds, right? So... Um, May, I don't know. But there's no number of people requirements. It doesn't say we have to have X amount of people for this to be a legitimate gathering. Our purpose of gathering, the goal of gathering, is to encourage us to love God and love people and do loving things towards God and towards others. The focus is not ourself. The focus is God and his kingdom. Maybe during this, this virus pandemic, we made a mistake uh, as a church family. 
I kind of think we do, um, and, and I don't know. Maybe we should have been getting together, I already alluded, maybe we should have been getting together in just smaller groups. I mean, hey, the governor, the president, everybody said we could have got together in, in groups of 10 or less, right? And we should have got together in groups of 10 or less throughout the pandemic. And I know a couple of groups did that and, and all, but maybe we should have been promoting that and encouraging that as a church for us to form these smaller groups for us to get together for the purpose of encouraging one another and loving each other and loving others. Maybe we should have been doing something like that. Second, the second thing that I wanted you to notice from the text, from this gathering thing, is it's a major reason for us to gather, uh, but uh, it's, it's something else. It, by calling us together means that whatever we're doing, is we have to do it together. We have, being to, it has to happen together. Whatever this thing about stimulating one another, to go, it has to happen together. We have to be together for this to happen. And so we have to come together. And, I, and I've thought about this a lot. Maybe afterwards or maybe in your homes you can talk about this over dinner. But uh, why? Why do we have to be together? Why can't we just do it over the phone? I mean, can't we, can we do it over the phone? I mean, why, why do we have to be together? The implication is we have to be in each other's presence. And I don't know. Maybe it's the physical touch. I mean, I've noticed a bunch of you coming in this morning and you've, you've, kinda, you, you've, you've wanted to hug, you've wanted to touch. Maybe it's the physical touch, and I get it. We can't do that right now. We're not supposed to do that if we're not doing life together. But, but maybe it's the physical touch part. Maybe it's the personal testimony part. So when you get up here and talk about how God has met you, or, or we're in a small group around dinner table, and you're talking about how God helped you, God, God you, were, you were crushed, but God came through and just sustains you. I, you know, maybe it's the personal testimony part. Maybe that's why we've got to be together because we can each pour into each other's life. I, I maybe it's the visual. Maybe it's just the fact of seeing you this morning, seeing your faces, you know. Maybe, maybe that's it. I, I don't know. John in his first letter, remember what he told the, 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 the readers of his first letter? He said what we've touched, what we've seen, what we've heard personally. I mean, he's alluded to the fact that he was, a, he was, a, he was physically there. So maybe that yeah, has something to do with it. Again, I just want to remind everyone, church isn't a sacred space we long to be in, but it's a sacred people we long to be with, long to gather with. And the third thing is, and I need to touch on this, it says uh, we should be faithful to this gathering and not forsake it. You see that? Not forsaking our gathering together. So here's a question. Have we forsaken the gathering of God's people over the last uh, past months? And I, I would answer to that categorically no. Here's what the word forsake means. Jesus cried out. I'm going to give you examples. Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, Acts chapter 2 verse 27. God did not forsake Jesus into the realm of the dead. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul said, We are persecuted but not forsaken. Several of Paul's companions, including Demas, forsook him. God promised, I'll never leave you nor forsake you, Hebrews 13.5. As you can see, the word forsake means to absolutely abandon, to categorically desert. And we have not abandoned our gathering together. In fact, we've been on the opposite, trying to be faithful to uh, help people. We've been trying to be faithful to those in governing, governing authorities over us for a season. And uh, so, no, this does not constitute forsaking, as Paul means there. But if you abandon Jesus, you will abandon his people. And I want to say this. If you abandon his people, if you forsake his people, you will forsake Jesus, too. They go hand in glove. 
we, Jesus and his people, we're, we're one in the same. We are the body of Christ. We are how Jesus lives out his life among us. I realize in this pandemic, some are still, still concerned about their health. I get that. And, uh, and I get that you're not abandoning uh, our, our gathering. In fact, as a church family, we've tried to do some things to keep us together visually, at least through, uh, through the live stream that we've done. And then we sat out here in cars, and uh, I found that very unfulfilling, just saying. I couldn't see any of your faces, and it was, uh, it was hard. But anyway, um, so we've tried to mitigate the loss of assembly by gathering virtually, but uh, those things cannot, now listen carefully, those things cannot permanently replace what, what we're supposed to do, which is gather in each other's presence. And, and, if, and if your health is compromised and you cannot gather in a large group like this, find a small group of believers that you can gather with and be encouraged and carry out what God desires here uh, for us. Now, the book of Hebrews, in, this, in the passage that we read, it says, you know, he's writing to Jewish believers who are about to abandon Jesus and go back to Judaism. So they've been following Jesus, but they're reconsidering, and they're about to give up on their faith in Jesus and go back to Judaism, back to the first covenant, which the author has said is passing away. It's, it's obsolete. Okay, they're about to go back there. And he tells them, he says, don't abandon getting together as is the habit of some, but all the more as you see the day drawing near. You know, I, I used to think he was talking about the return of Christ. I don't anymore. I think he was talking to them about the day that they were about to lose their roots, the day of the destruction of, of uh, the first covenant, really in its totality, when the temple is destroyed in A.D. 70. And I think he's telling those Jewish believers, as you see the day drawing near of, of God destroying the temple and, 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 and Judaism, as, as you've noted in the first covenant, as you see that day, don't forsake because you need, you, need, you need each other more than ever at that time. And I'd say to all of us, you know, in times of peril, in times where we're hurting and we're afraid, and, and man, I think this pandemic fits that bill, you know, this is a time where we really need each other. This is a time where we really need the encouragement and the love and the support of one another. So all the more as you see the difficulties of the day, don't forsake gathering yourself together with other believers. So I'm, I'm finished now, and I wasn't any shorter than normal, hardly, but uh, I'm finished now. But I want to I do one more thing on this last point, and I want to talk about how do we carry out this encouragement to love and good deeds. Now, the author of Hebrews doesn't, doesn't add that to it, but I think Paul does in one of his letters to the church at Corinth. And so the church at Corinth, you can listen, you don't need to look this up, but it's first, if you want to write it for your notes, it's 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26 and following. But this is what Paul writes them. He says, what then, brothers and sisters, whenever you come together and assemble, that's us right now, okay? Each one has a hymn, a teaching, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything is to be done for the building up. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should evaluate. But if something has been revealed to another person sitting there, the first prophet should be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that everyone may learn, and everyone may be encouraged. So there's two things that I want you to notice about how we do this when we come together, how we stimulate to one another to love and good deeds. Here, here's the first one. We all do it. 
We all do it. It's not just something I'm doing as the preacher or Michael's doing, leading us in worship through praise this morning. This is something everybody participates in. And, uh, and apparently back then there was two types of gatherings, even as we have two types of gatherings today. One of them was a large group gathering where they met in the temple. And the other one was when they met, they met daily. I'm not necessarily encouraging that, but they met daily. It says from house to house. Maybe this house met this week and I mean this day, and maybe that means that. But they had these two kind of meetings. They met in the hall of Tyrannus in Acts chapter, uh, I didn't write the chapter down, but they met in the hall of Tyrannus to meet together. But then they met in homes. And what they did when they came together, notice it says everyone, he says that each one of you have a hymn, a teaching, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything be done to the building up of the body of Christ. And, and so this is something we all do together. And, you know, even in our large group gatherings, we've tried to encourage us to do that. And you know how we've done that, right? How, how, do, we do, how do we do that, Danny? <laughs> Put Danny on the spot. Come on, smile at me, everybody. This isn't all that heavy. So here's how we do it, by Danny coming up here and having a testimony, by Chris Lawrence talking about the generosity that she saw at the COP. Here, here, we invite, I am inviting you, my marshal getting up here and reading scripture, but actually talking about what God has shown him. It's, it's all of us having a part in that, right? And the big meeting, we try to do it in the big meeting, but you know what? The best place for this is around the dinner table. I really want to encourage you to... Start a group in your home. Oh, just invite some other believers to come to your home and sit around and sing and each have a hymn that you say, hey, let's sing this. Or you have a word of how God's encouraged you this week. Or, you know, we, we can do these small group meetings without compromising a lot of people and being faithful to what uh, those in authority over us want us to do. I'd really encourage you to do that. And even after the pandemic, I think this is absolutely crucial for our well-being as believers, and that is to get with smaller groups of believer, believers where we can actually live this out, you know, where each one of us can, can have a part and play a part and speak into each other's lives. It doesn't really happen so much here, although here's, here's another thought, and for those of you that are watching by live stream and not a part of our church, let me tell you something about our church family. So when the service ends around noon, I'll, I'll be here at 1 o'clock, and there'll still be 20 people in this room, and they'll still be talking to one another and encouraging one another. So I, I think that's what we're talking about here. Get together as small groups and share a meal. Well, what a great way. What a great way to uh, encourage one another to love and good deeds over the chicken, over whatever potluck somebody brings, right? Nothing better than that. And then the last thing that I want to say is that the major part of our assemblies should be exhortations from the Word of God. Do you see that in there? That's what it says, right? He talks about sharing hymns and testimonies and all that kind of stuff. And then he says, let two prophets share. I mean, we, we, we kind of made one prophet share. I'm not trying to claim the label of prophet, prophet though I'm trying to be prophetical in teaching us the Word of God. Uh, we've kind of made just one prophet speak at our meetings. But back then, evidently, they were saying, let two people speak uh, from the Word of God. And, but, but my point is that in our gatherings, the Word of God needs to be central. And I thank God for you all, and I thank God for our church family, because that is indeed central to who we are. I would hold up my Bible, but it's my iPad, right? The Word of God is central to us. We believe the Word of God. We believe it is God's 
uh, we believe it's God's instructions, God's love letter to us. It, it speaks to us. And so we've made it central in, uh, in our gathering. So speaking of an exhortation from God's word, that brings me to the end of mine. Let us draw near to God. Let us hold fast to our confession that Jesus is Lord, that he is offering to us eternal life. And let us encourage one another to love and good deeds. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these reminders. I, I pray that this has been encouraging to the body of Christ here. Lord, that we have been encouraged, Lord, to, uh, to draw near to you. And again, Lord, to, to actually to, to block out the noise, just the ambient noise, but not just the ambient noise, the noise of our, that's always in our heads, Lord, to just shut that noise down and get still and get quiet with you, or we can draw near to you. We can hear from your word. We can, we can sense your presence with us. Lord, help us to draw near to you. And help us, Lord, to hold fast to our confession. Lord, we recognize that, that uh, even, even from the parable that Marshall uh, spoke from, Lord, that there are people that start well but don't finish. Lord, help us to be men and women who cling to you, who draw near so that we don't fall away, so that we don't uh, forsake you. And then, and then finally, Father, help us to be faithful to this last desire that you have for us, that because Jesus is risen, we might encourage one another to be different, to love people, to love you with all of our hearts. Help us to encourage and motivate each other to that end. We pray this prayer now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check out our website at baconscastle.com to get to know us and see what God is doing locally here in Surrey. Be blessed.